What'd you say you played? Folk songs. Folk songs. I said you were a musician. Inside Lewin Davis, the new film from the Coen brothers, the Academy Award-winning creators of Fargo and No Country for Old Men, starring Oscar Isaac, Kerry Mulligan, Justin Timberlake, and John Goodman. The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw gives the film a glowing five-star review, calling it one of the Coen's best. Inside Lewin Davis, in cinemas January 24th. The Guardian. Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Kieran Yates, and this week Luke Turner is back with an update on all things noisy, plus tracks from Elbow, Meridian Dan, and The War on Drugs. All here on Music Weekly from The Guardian. I'm joined in the studio by Michael Han and Dorian Linsky. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Kieran. How are you? We're not bad. Covering for Alexis, of course. Yes, he's ill. I spoke to him this morning. He had an operation yesterday. And, uh, Do you sound fucked up? He sounded like he was on some, some fairly serious painkillers. Mm-hmm. It has to be said. But it's worth it for the new face. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I thought it was pretty surprising he wanted to look like Eva Longoria, but, you know, <laughs> that's what he chose. <laughs> What's been happening in the news this week? The Grammys, right? You excited? The Grammys. Yes. Are you excited? I Kendrick was. Kendrick performance was just so no, good, wasn't it? I was kind of embarrassing. I felt embarrassed that I actually liked three of the Grammy winners and thought they were good choices, yeah. which never happens because the fact that the Grammys is clueless is just one of those sort of articles of faith, you know. Mm-hmm. Like the Brits will always get things wrong. The Grammys will always get things wrong. Sure. Um, and then it's more confusing when they choose people where you think, oh, yeah, you know, I guess, mm. you know, OK, you're going to give it to Get Lucky and Royals. And it seemed like one of those years. And, really s- and year. same trailer, different park for country album. Yeah. An mm. album that many of us at The Guardian have been raving about, a rare country album that many of us at The Guardian have been raving about, rather than the expected either Taylor Swift or some Nashville yeah. legend. Yeah, they seem to sort of get quite a few things right. I don't know whether that was just maybe it was an odd year. Um, but then they did have the best rock track was uh, <laughs> Servano, wasn't it? Yeah. You see, this is the thing. All the talk has been about Macklemore and Ryan Lewis picking Kendrick Lamar. But the things that really stuck out to me as as a rock fan, a rockist, if you if you like, is that, yeah, best rock, rock song, Cut Me Some Slack by Dave Grohl, Paul McCartney, Chris Novoselic and Pat Smear from the soundtrack of Dave Grohl's documentary Sound City. Now, it's not that it's bad, but is this really the best rock can do? And then best rock album. What should we do? We'll do a live album of a gig some years ago by Led Zeppelin, reforming. That was the best rock album of the year, wasn't it? So who would you have liked to see win? Well, this is the sad thing, actually. It's kind of the state of rock is such that there aren't those kind of obvious spanning contenders that the Grammys need. I mean, the Grammy can't be doing with, wow, this album came out on Secretly Canadian and sold 1,200 copies, but God, it was amazing. The The Grammys doesn't exist to reward that music. They but could have the, done Arcade Fire or Arctic Monkeys. I mean, I'm not saying those are those are, are brilliant albums. It could have given the it's, sense that they were actually in touch with yes, the modern world. It's not like if you're resorting to an old Led Zeppelin gig, then surely there's the got to be some up. there's got to be some strong contenders. But uh, I was watching the BBC um, Four series about American rock the other night, and in the last part they talked to Tom Petty, and you know, he makes the crucial point. Actually, and we all know it's true, but you don't expect to hear from. 
rock stars you know, approaching their dotage. He said, well, you know, rock's a moment has gone. You know, what's the point in talking about it? For, for 20 years now, hip-hop has been the background noise in popular culture, not rock music anymore. People don't talk about rock music. Kids don't hear rock music in the way don't that they used to. Don't need rock when you've got Macklemore, Michael. Okay. <laughs> Is it Macklemore, not Macklemore? No, it's Macklemore. Yeah. Oh, God, my life, I've been living a lie. <laughs> but I, <laughs> don't I mean, worry, that's what I'm here for. From what Kieran mentioned earlier, also, the performances, there were... A few performances there that were worthwhile, and even yeah, though really generally good. live rock rap mashups are from hell. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that totally. Kendrick was just so forceful, yeah, and it just brilliant. it sort of made it about him. I don't I don't like that Imagine Dragon song, but they just it seemed like they were making themselves his backing band for 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 a generally bad idea. It was a really good example of that. Surprisingly, and it, and it was it. genuinely exciting. And I think that actually what you're talking about is sort of the Grammys generally getting wrong in terms of awards as a spectacle they I think that the performance is always pretty like, amazing or at least worth talking about did you think that, really the, that, that people were kind of just trying to make a controversy where there wasn't any about Beyonce because they needed one because I watched that mm. and it's like compared to you know Miley at the VMAs mm. there's nothing it was just like yeah she was wearing a sort of sexy outfit it wasn't particularly risque or particularly unusual and she hugged her husband yeah I mean, it, it seemed like the weirdest sort of controversy fishing, like, oh, there was an angry parent on Twitter. <laughs> it's the age we live in. You've got to be angry about something. I think it's, it's more, I thought it was just more sort of a, a boredom at that saccharine display of affection with her and Jay-Z, which we've seen so much on stage now that it's like, oh, OK. Oh, you see, I want I, her to be more... As, as a happily married man, I don't have any problem with people who are married showing that they're happy. <laughs> God. <laughs> Sorry, I've ruined the whole time. Uh, no, what, what other performances did but you I, like, though? What do you think of I, Lord's jerky, weird, uncomfortable one? Well, I, I don't find... I mean, that's kind of her thing. That's mm. not... It's sort of a sort of style that, that she's chosen. I don't think it's uncomfortable. That's just sort of what she does mm-hmm. on stage. And what struck me was how incredibly hushed that song is mm-hmm. and you, you know I think that's part of its success on the radio and it did actually until watching that I hadn't actually thought of this but I do think it has a bit of a nothing compares to you kind of appeal mm-hmm. in just this song that seems to quiet everything down when it comes on the radio she comes on the performance and you know for the first verse it's just like it's voice and drums mm-hmm. you don't even have the keyboard coming in and you just don't get hit songs like that you look at the other big hit songs like you know we can't stop or roar or whatever they were or the imagine dragons last year um, and they're very busy and noisy and punching through and needing to grab people's attention which you would expect mm. and i do think the reason why that record has become so phenomenally successful is because it's so anti i mean not even purposely anti i don't think it's attempting to you know to make a big point in that way mm. you know, musically but um it just is this this alternative, and it just changes the mood in and the room and on the airwaves. Sound, it doesn't sound too mature for her, um, and I think that what you're talking about, that sort of um, Sinead O'Connery type thing. When I first heard it, I was like, oh, I don't know how this would translate live because it almost feels like it would it would overwhelm her. But I thought actually that performance, even through all her sort of discomfort to watch as an audience member, in my opinion, I thought she sounded good. But I like the discomfort. That's kind of part of her thing, isn't it? That she's not. She's not a showbiz jazz hand kid. She not. She hasn't got dance moves. She hasn't got mm. a particular. Uh, you know, hasn't got training in that way, and she just comes from a, this sort of tradition of sort of of her own. Yeah. And the, the, the sheer oddness of the way that she moves. 
kind of endears me to her because it's like nobody told you to do that yeah especially when you see her compared to someone like Katy Perry who was doing this really contrived kind of goth mashup with you know Atlanta stripper type performance and that just seems so forced and so fake that actually seeing Lord as a comparison you thought well at least you know for all her her discomfort she's authentic in a way that Katy Perry is just like so difficult to watch in my opinion so come on Kieran okay Mac Lamore and Ryan Lewis you, you you've you've kept your powder dry so far <laughs> what the hip-hop greats of our generation you mean is it is it a disgrace <laughs> no well what did you think of that what did you think of of that I generally don't have strong feelings about Matt. I, I have no I, horses I in the Mac po- Lamar versus Kendrick Lamar I have race. Quite I mean, I think, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I thought you too. two might have stronger opinions about this than me. I mean, obviously Kendrick was robbed. We don't need to talk about that. But <laughs> in terms of awards, but I just yeah, I, I just find Mac Lamar like really. I don't know. I don't know what another word is for just being like dry and basic and like a damning indictment of. The bet of what people deem to be the best thing in uh, on offer well, in hip hop at the moment. Well, there was a great um, piece on Slate today or yesterday where it said, "Don't hate Macklemore for being white or for all the various reasons, the sort of the, the racial politics, the politics of same love, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Sure. Um, hate him for being bad. He is bad, and he is. He's just like he's a he's a bad rapper. Yeah. And his music is boring and obvious, mm. and. You can see why certain messages that he has would be embraced. I don't like the way that they're embraced as a kind of stick to beat the rest of hip-hop with, and I don't Mm. think he intended it to be that extreme, because I'm sure he loves a lot of hip-hop. But it just seemed to be like... It was the equivalent of giving an Oscar to Mm. Crash. Mm -hmm. Like, not a good movie, but a movie which said important things that we all need to listen to. And it's like... And I like... you You know, I like protest songs and all that, but I don't think that you should overinflate the importance of something because it seems to have like a deep message so so why do you i mean this is the interesting thing then why has macklemore connected in such a huge way then if a he does dull but worthy songs b it's rubbish and c of course he has no business muscle behind or theoretically has no business muscle behind him maybe independently and self-releasing i mean obviously there comes a point where that generates its own revenues and you can Mm. promote so why 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 is he connected in such a big way with so many people He's relatively inoffensive when it comes to radio play or performances. I think maybe you, maybe a lot of radio pluggers would be more happy to play him than maybe like Kendrick or you know Schoolboy Q or members of Black Hibby. And there is something accessible about him, I guess. Yeah, it's hooky. I mean, it's not rubbish as in yeah, kind of like incompetent. Is, it's, it's just catchy. like it's just it's sort of obvious hooks mm. and quite old-fashioned beats. And I, I do think there's always been that there's this audience in hip hop, particularly white audience that kind of feels like, why can't we have records like, and I like these records, by the way, you know, <laughs> like Hip Hop Array by Naughty by Nature. That kind of vibe, that kind of very nice, like celebratory, catchy, you know, and then people go, and not about bitches and guns and so on. It's all been downhill since a tribe called Quest. Yeah, that's, that's it, all. that's <laughs> it. And it totally taps into that. It's just like, it, it, it sort of deproblematizes hip hop for people that have got problems with lots of aspects of hip hop. Um, which, of course, is why it then becomes this weird sort of cultural battleground. Now, mm-hmm. Kieran, I know you okay. wanted to spend quite a lot of time talking <laughs> about the uh, best, um, where's it gone? The best New Age album, Love's River by Laura Sullivan, which I know Dorian's a big fan of as well. Um, but there has been an even bigger musical event than that this week, which was the death of Pete Seeger. Mm-hmm. Uh, a fascinating figure, Pete Seeger, because almost, in a way, his his achievements uh, transcend music. And in fact, the music is almost the last thing that you think of him for, isn't it, Dorian? 
Well, I exaggerate, well, obviously. Well, the thing is, but... the, 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 his sort of strength and his values are pre-rock. And he's pretty much, because of, you know, he died at 94, and he's pretty much the last figure that you can, you can say that of. His, he was so much in the folk tradition, the idea that songs belong to everybody and they get passed around. And, you know, he's, he's credited with co-writing. I did a little air quotes there. We Shall Overcome. And he says, well, no, I just adapted it, changed it. It was actually started years earlier by picket line protesters. It's evolved. And he said, well, that's like a people's song with different people write it. And then everybody that sings it might sing it with a different rhythm or a different context. And so it belongs to all of them. And he was like, uh, you know, he was never a star. He was never like about him. It was about what he could do. And so he helped popularize This Land Is Your Land by Woody Guthrie when Woody Guthrie's sort of health was in his fail. You know, he sort of popularized as a protest chant, Give Peace a Chance. It was obviously out there as a record that was well known, but he kind of led the crowd in Washington, D.C. in 1969. And it's a really unrock thing. It's not about charisma. It's not about, I mean, he had some charisma, but it's not about ego. It's, um, it's something very sort of clear and pure and, and, and very old fashioned. So if you go to his records now, they feel relevant more as historical artefacts and history lessons than maybe as a song that you would stick on your iPod. I think one of the fascinating things um, reading about him has been people who remember seeing him, especially people who remember seeing him in the 50s and 60s, um, at the, I guess you'd say the apogee of his involvement and influence, is that you know, they would all say, well, it wasn't about his songs. It was never about his songs. It was about him involving the people in the songs you know it was all the shows were they were community involvement events which sound it kind of sounds oddly naff but at the same time I mean I remember seeing obviously Billy Bragg has been commenting extensively on this but I remember thinking of the Billy Bragg's oh Kieran I remember thinking of the Billy Bragg gigs I went to kind of 84 85 through the minor strike and things like that where it was exactly the same kind of feeling of you know 800 people 1000 people 1200 people all singing along with those words but it's a very powerful thing and when you see live clips of him and he's always going like come on sing along even on like tv when he was on johnny cash show and stuff and you think actually that's something that of course rock really has learned from and does really come from folk a lot of, sort of early rock but there wasn't like i don't know whether chuck berry was ever like sing along with me you know yeah and so it comes so when people are doing that at coldplay or mumford and sons or arcade fire or, or whoever that might be that way of working a crowd, that very sort of generous, it's not about me as this kind of, uh, this dynamo of charisma, this sort of dark, you know, anti-Kanye in a way. It's not like, um, it's not like, oh my God, I'm so mesmerized by this presence on stage. It's like I'm mesmerized by being part of this larger event. And so you see that, you know, he was obviously helped set up the Newport Folk Festival. And so you see his influence in festivals in a sense of, the people coming together, which can sometimes seem naff, but it can also be incredibly moving. I'm assuming interesting it's, of course, sparked a bit of a debate about where have all the protest singers gone, which I think slightly ignores the fact that first Pete Seeger had some enormous events on which his his reputation influence could be forged. I'm not suggesting for a moment that Pete Seeger savagely exploited the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War to make a name for himself. I don't mean that. But, you know, struggles of that magnitude don't feel, certainly in the Western world, um, don't feel as if they're there to be to be brought on by, by protest singers anymore. Now, I think it's wrong. I mean, I've had you writing pieces before, Dorian, about, you know, where are the modern protestings? They do exist, but it, it's it's an underground thing. But then, yeah. watching Newsnight last night, where you were on briefly, and you raised the issue of, 
you, know, you don't have to be you know the person in a flannel shirt uh, living in the dust bowl to be singing political songs i mean and you were implicitly referring i think to kanye raising oh, right. raising the issue no, i haven't of, seen which bits they care from the interview <laughs> yeah, but you, you can you can be a rich successful artist but you know if you're black and you see racism it's protest if you're calling it out isn't it no i mean absolutely i think what we don't have uh, this is the argument i sort of make again and again with where all the protesting has gone is what we don't have is someone that's going to take on that mantle which i do think seems rather naff you know we've had you even a Joe Strummer you wouldn't have now, or you know, it just seems like a naff idea that you would get up and be like, I'm going to speak about issues now, and yet you can have, um, you know, feminism on Beyonce's album, you have race on Kanye's album in very complicated ways, you have, you know, Muse have done three albums in a trot generally about political themes, but people don't really clock them as that, and probably to their benefit that people don't see them as this political band. So the songs are still out there from very major, major artists. It's just that nobody wants to take on what I think is now a rather archaic model of being the song leader stroke spokesman. Yeah, and the, artist, the, the relationship between artist and audience has changed, hasn't it? So yes, no longer can you be the person, right, put your hands in the air, we're going to smash fascism one way. Because people do go, yeah, come on, mate, you're not going to. We're, we're too sophisticated in an age where... Where well, global corporations govern every part of our life. No one truly believes that you know if you shake your fist at well, Ten Downing Street, you'll change the world. People are more impatient now because I think there was a point in the sixties where it's like, why aren't they addressing civil rights if someone wasn't? Mm. Whereas now, you know, Flaming Lips, there was a point when they were on tour during uh, the Bush years, and Wayne Coyne made a speech about Bush, and people were getting really annoyed, not because they liked Bush, but they were just like, oh, shut up, this is boring. And Play like, the hits. Yeah, and it's like ninety-eight percent of the set is like balloons and psychedelic rock but this two percent where he's just like and this is why i hate george bush was deemed boring do you realize i've only come here to hear one song now that wouldn't you know that just was not the case in the 60s so yeah. audiences have a very different different attitude let's proceed to singles club dorian your track first That was Elbow and New York Mornings. Dorian, tell us about it. Well, I chose it because it's, uh, you know, it is the sort of comeback single from, I mean, one of the few rock bands, I suppose, that are still a big deal. And Occupy, I think this really unusual, maybe unprecedented space. I'm trying to think of a band that, I mean, I suppose you could say actually sort of Radiohead, Circo Computer, where you're essentially an art rock band with inclinations towards quietness and subtlety and odd chord changes and tempo shifts. But you've got a handful of songs, I mean, in Elway's case, one particularly, um, that have just pushed you into this position where you like play the Olympics at closing ceremony and mm. you're on TV all the time and you're kind of these national treasures. And I think this album, which, which I've heard... It's sort of admirable for the way that it seems to have completely ignored that expectation and has gone with the kind of band that they are. And what I think this song, 
which I don't think is the best on the record, but it's it's always the lyrics that I end up liking about him. That he's you know he's written a song about New York, which is kind of a cliche. The Brit moved mm-hmm. to New York. But it's the details that he chooses. He's kind of fascinated by the construction workers. It's not just like looking at the skyscrapers. Uh, it's kind of thinking like, God, how many people did it take to build that? And what did they go through? And there's a line about Yoko, John and Yoko moving there to escape racism back at home. Mm. Um, and just they seem like really interesting, unusual takes. And I, I, I think that since Elbow becomes successful, they often just get lumped in as a, was it some of the you know Waitrose indie rock or the the Coldplay yeah. it's okay to like or whatever whatever but I I always think there's there's so much sort of detail and thought and unexpected choices in the music I think it's an interesting point but I kind of disagree with you about the notion they're dismissed I think one of the things that's interesting about Elbow is I agree with the point about them having been made into an, an unofficial national treasure but even people who don't care about them don't dislike them actively in the way that they do dislike Coldplay mm. and bands like that. And I think part of that is to do with the the absolute open-heartedness of Guy Garvey, the sense in his, his songs, these are real emotions, not emotions that have been conjured up to move 50,000 people, mm. which is generally people's suspicion of of the groups that make big emotional music. You know, it's the thing that you're being manipulated. An elbow never make you feel like you're being manipulated, which I think is a very rare gift when well, you're I making music like that. Well, it's because you get the big emotion from the small scenario. You know, if you go back to One Day Like This, which, you know, if it hasn't been ruined by a thousand reality shows, it is about somebody waking up with a hangover in, in bed next to a woman and thinking, you know, and not sort of being able to believe their luck. It's a very real scenario, which becomes this thing that... Apparently someone actually said, oh, that song you wrote for the Olympics was great. And they were like, no, that came out four years earlier and was about something else entirely. No, I mean, I think that's the reason why I and a lot of people obviously do like them. But you just you see my Twitter feed is full of snarky indie snobs. But, you know, there is a kind of line on elbow that is just like because they're big and because they're emotionally open, you know, because open hearted, they are sort of de facto dull because they are not they are not. Or just a e- bit not, uncool. They're not edgy or uncool. You know, yeah. they're not they're not edgy or whatever. But I think that, that that's kind of what's intriguing is that they can have that mass appeal, but still be making a lot of odd choices. These are people that love Peter Gabriel era Genesis, and you can still and talk talk. You know, those are their favourite things, and you can still hear them in there. And I think actually, when something like that becomes big, it doesn't become less interesting. It becomes more interesting because it's like wow, and you're playing these pretty slow, subtle songs a lot of the time uh, in the O2. Or headlining a festival and getting react and getting amazing reactions, mm. and I've saw, saw, yeah, I've seen it with Radiohead, but I haven't seen that with maybe any other band. It's, it's also worth, I should say, checking out the video um, to this, which we've had on the Guardian Music site this week, which I think is very moving in its own right. It's uh, it just concentrates on Dennis and Lois, the kind of legendary New York scene figures who've been integral to the fabric of New York music for more than forty years, and of course are now an old couple, and. Um, they they were part of the Ramones story for a very long time, and there's a sad moment towards the end where I think it's Dennis is saying, you know, all the people that were part of this scene, they're all gone now. We're all that's left. It's a very, very powerful video, actually. Really works. But again, by going for a tiny detail, but in some yeah, depth, not just, just like going, in their oh, songs. you know, death is coming. Here. Chris Martin, mm. he, he, when he writes a song about death, mm. it's about the concept of death, mm. and it's because what you move people by talking about death. By talking about a very specific scenario, the death of one person, the death of a friend. I think I think on that point, there's you know there's some worth in there because I think I have a begrudging respect for bands like this who are, in my world, 
have very little cool capital. You know, and they're sort of uncool. They could be very easily dismissed as just having this contrived loftiness or making music to have this, you know, big, overwhelming coming of age moment. But actually, when you're listening, when you're listening closer, because I've heard the album as well. And yeah, it is, it is packed with all these little details. And actually, it, it requires you to really listen in before you can just sort of dismiss it so easily. So I think if you have the time and the inclination to sit and listen in, then it's rewarding in its own way. I think that's going to be on the posters, Kieran. Requires you to sit and listen before you dismiss immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but really listen. Do you know what I mean? Because I, I like heard this the first couple of times and I was like, oh, this is is too much I just thought it's just more of the same it just feels like god the loftiness it's like I, I, so I, over earnest I do I'm kind of midway between you I sort of know what you mean I, I always approach new elbow music with a slight sense of oh. and then I listen to go oh this is lovely though. yeah then you this think is oh lovely. I see what you're doing there all right let's move on to Michael's track That was The War on Drugs and Red Eyes. That track's actually been around for a little while, but I wanted to pick it because I know no one else has, and also they have an album coming out in a month or two uh, called Lost in the Dream. What I like about War on Drugs is the way they've picked some reference points that you wouldn't think should fit together and have worked them perfectly. I mean, for me, this whole album follows on from a track on their last record, Slave Ambient, a track called Baby Missiles. Uh, which I uh, characterised in a review in The Guardian as sounded like the Noy Street band. And this whole record, Lost in the Dream, it's as if Bruce Springsteen, there's a lost Bruce Springsteen album from between Born in the USA and Human, and, uh, sorry, Tunnel of Love. But at which point he and the E Street band had only been listening to Krautrock. <laughs> you know, it's motoric throughout the album. The, nothing, you know, your classic rock tradition plays just off the beat. Pretty much the entire album is absolutely on the beat. You know, there's no hint of rock and roll, even as these big lyrical guitar solos unfolding over the top of it. Um, Adam Grandusiel, obviously his voice is incredibly reminiscent of Bob Dylan and Neil Young in that kind of high-pitched, slightly whiny American rock way. But um, and the lyrics, I don't think are necessarily that much to write home about. But there's something extraordinarily compelling about the album. It's, there are so many hooks on it. Um, I mean, it's, it's 80s AOR, as played by Space Rockheads, which, which really shouldn't work as a concept, and yet somehow it does. I mean, I find this music on the War on Drugs record just overwhelming, almost. I find it very, very moving melodically. It's, it's not the lyrics. I'm not going to it for the lyrics. There's a sense of, of uplift, which you can get from plenty of stuff, and a sense of melancholy, which you can get from plenty of stuff. But there's, a, there's an almost windswept feeling about it. It makes me feel both alone and part of something at the same time. I think it's an extraordinary record. I'm actually I'm off to interview him after this, and I've been reading That's a so lot. Nice. Well, I've been reading. The problem is I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely <laughs> not looking. Michael catching feelings today. I'm, like, I'm genuinely not looking forward to it because I spent uh, I spent, a, I spent an hour and a half, couple of hours reading old interviews, and he really is not a forthcoming interviewee, and I cannot see what the story is at just, all. Why don't you just em- embarrass him? I love with, you, man. With your just a huge emotion. <laughs> it's just like this made me. 
I've been going through some, <laughs> some difficult stuff recently, and your music healed me, man. It healed me. And then maybe he'll just like break down and go, Okay, me too. <laughs> but I, I genuinely have no idea I'm what the story meth. is. I'm, still, I'm meeting him, what, an, hour's t- an hour and a quarter's time, and I really have no idea what I'm going to ask him. Great. That's how. Always a winner. <laughs> young, young, young journalists listen to that. <laughs> what did you think, Dorian? Yeah, I mean, Michael's kind of sort of summed it, summed it up, the sound, why, why it's interesting. And it seems kind of, uh, I mean, it doesn't seem like rocket science to go, oh, actually, if you take these, these two things and put them together. But it is quite unusual. And it reminds me of the Secret Machines, who I was revisiting recently when Benjamin Curtis died. And they, they never really took off. I thought they were going to be really big. I remember seeing them live a couple of times and thought they were amazing because they were basically it was sort of, you know, Led Zeppelin plus Noi. And it was amazing. They had the most incredible drummer. And there was this big sort of like, it was classic, they had classic rock, which is really not my thing generally, mm. but with this kind of sort of cosmic and sort of European feel to it. And I thought, this is, a, this is just an amazing idea. That, Why don't more people combine those two things? You get like the big solos, you get the rock, but it's got this kind of, this other otherworldly quality, a sort of strangeness, more rhythmic propulsion, which kind of, I suppose, j- just gives it enough of a twist that you, I can enjoy all the predictable pleasures. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I don't just feel like, oh, I'm listening to a another tuneful indie rock album yeah actually that reminds me of something i hadn't thought of for years one of my most embarrassing moments in music years ago a very early secret machines gig in london at the barfly and i thought they were great and was blown away by Did it you got with hashtag feelings uh, <laughs> it gets worse story i went around the corner after the gig got a kebab from the marathon kebab house on short farm road was chewing it away and secret machines were sitting on the tailgate of their van you know looking sweaty and tired and slightly fed up me with a mouthful of kebab when I said, oh, that was brilliant, and spat out a giant mouthful of half-chewed Donna straight onto Josh Garza, the drummer's arm. He paused, <laughs> stared down at it and said, I guess I should say thank you, man. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> oh, that's what did you think of the that's... war on drugs, Kieran? Uh, yeah, I liked the sonic details. I liked all the synths and I liked, you know... You can take it or leave it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I probably won't ever listen to it again. Um, and lastly, let's move on to my track. Driving a German whip, whip, blacked out window, leaning back, back, see man driving a German whip, whip, look like a baller, peas and that. I don't kick ball, do I look like a baller? See man driving a German whip, whip. Who told you I move like pauper? See man driving a German whip. Who told you I serve and flip? Ride my bike on a burning bitch. Man talk, but I'm gonna burn him quick. Madman, nutty on a Sherman tip. Not dead man wanna mess in my aura. Someone said that's bang out of order. Can't make six foot man feel smaller. Treat them man like private caller. And I don't wanna box man, trust me. Who told you that I? I got rusty, draw for the WD-40, punch up big man, old like 40, big boy bike, big team 650, moving along on the road too quickly. That was Meridian Dan featuring Big H and JME with German Whip. How do you think Meridian Dan, Big H or JME would react if I spat half chewed give out over their eyes? <laughs> they're very polite young men, so okay. they, would, they would say, it's all right, Michael. <laughs> it's going to be my new interview opener from now on, every time I meet someone. <laughs> Why, mate? <laughs> Um, so that track is by Meridian Dan, who is a MC from Tottenham, who had been he's been making grime music for for years and years as part of Two Crews, Bloodline, and Meridian. 
who also have people like Boss Man and Skepta and Jeremy who are now in Boy Better Know. So he's been on the scene for a really long time and he's just got signed to PMR with this record and he's got an album coming out later in the year and this single's out in March. And I just wanted to bring it in because I thought on Underground in terms of, you know, sonic trends in club culture, you know, Grime was a really huge moment and everybody sort of, well, everybody in the Grime scene knows where they were when they first heard, you know, Dizzy's I Love You or when he won the Mercury. And then, you know, as as it kind of went more ma- mainstream and Wiley started doing all his sunny house pop tracks, um, you know, dubstep sort of took over and now house took over and Grime sort of went by the wayside. And even though people have been making Grime tracks under new monikers such as Future Grime or, you know, New School Grime. There have been MCs like Cozzy and Marga have been making various music. There hasn't been this, uh, a track like this, which has been so catchy and so full of that charisma and energy, which brought lots of people to it in the first place. And this track by Meridian Dan has been, has sort of received lots of airplay. It's been on One Extra, it's been on Rinse, it's been on Choice in Capital and it's been sort of on blogs and it's been played out in clubs and raves. And I just think that, it's a good example of a grime track sort of coming back and, I don't know, being exciting, having crossover appeal. And also representing all of those core grime characteristics that made the sound so good in the first place. Core values. Core values. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I just uh, want to make mention that as soon as this is playing, both, both Michael and Dorian in unison just put their heads in their hands. So That's, that's not <laughs> true, <laughs> Kieran. Yes, you did. <laughs> No, I think I've had to accept over the years that I just can't really be getting on with with grime. There's something about the really? there's something about the very very frantic British accented rap, right? Which I have a problem with. Which I don't mind. You can get that speed and that fronticity with um, you know Southern mm. American rap, not a problem. I can listen to slower British MCs, <laughs> not a problem. There's something about that combination which I just find just so do okay. you like gigs? Knitting needle in the ear. Uh, I go to many gigs. Uh, <laughs> I go to elbow she, gigs. She meant rhyme gigs. <laughs> right. I love rhyme gigs. Um, no, I mean, I've never, no, I mean, I don't, it's just, it's something that I've just never really been able to genuinely love. But is it Although, a speed issue? Or full do you of like admiration. The... I don't generally like the sound of British MCs that much. I don't know. I just feel like it, it's never, you know, for, it was interesting when the, the 10th anniversary of Boy in the Corner. Yep. And, the, and I just remember thinking, like, wow, this is a really impressive record. I'm not going to really listen to much, but it's, you know, it's a very impressive, bold, fresh, you know, mm. unsettling, exciting record. Sure. Um, but the way that people were talking about it, it was like, oh, right, yeah, you're talking about, like, one of the, your favourite records. You're talking about this record that shaped you, this record that you, that you really love, that you see as this kind of, like, landmark. Yeah, of course. And I felt like, right, now I really feel like, I thought I quite liked it. And now I think, no, I didn't. I think I admired it. Mm. and I'm so sort of appreciative of that that sort of the impact of that record and of the continuum although I don't see I'm no I'm not an expert but I don't see how this is a huge evolution in grime Mm -hmm. this doesn't sound like that different from something that might have been on a run the road compilation yeah exactly but that's why it's exciting I think you know I think it's you know it's definitely liked by people who have that nostalgic relationship with you know, with people like D-Double or Jammer or people who were on Run the Roads. Because, uh, you know, it has all these characters. It has, you know, the same humour and the same, you know, charisma and all those voices. You can, you know, at this point really pick out who those individuals are if you follow, 
um, the genre. And I think that there's something in that. And I think it's making the point that it's still exciting after all that time. And even if you were outside of that and you didn't listen to Boy in the Corner in the same way, you could never have denied how exciting that was at that time because it was played by clubs and it was referenced in pop culture over here. And it was really sold as something that was, you know, a really British, a British sound. Well, I think I'm going to have to resort to the, the, you know, the response that I've heard you give on the podcast before, which is just like, this isn't really my kind of thing, and I don't think I'm ever going to listen to it again, but it's obviously really impressive, <laughs> which, is, which is just sort of generally how I feel. It's not even meant to be fake praise. It's just like, I cannot, it's impossible for everyone to like everything that sure. is worthwhile, mm-hmm. and I just feel like this is just one of those little blind spots I have, like the metal voice, mm-hmm. you know, that it's just like, it's two nails on blackboard for me, and I kind of feel a bit bad about that, but there we go. All right. What do you think, Michael? Um, I didn't mind it. I know that sounds done with front pace. I, I have more in common with what Dorian had to say than with what you had to say. But and one of the things about grime that I was found trouble is is the, the the way it sounds so threatening. Now, it's not that I don't. It's not that I can't stand any music that sounds aggressive and violent. Because I mean, I have quite a lot of hardcore punk. I have a, sure. a fondness for a fair amount of metal. I think part of it is that I understand the rules. I understand what's comedy and what's real there. Uh, With grime, I don't know what the rules are. So, frankly, it all sounds threatening to me. And the other thing is, Kieran, and I have said this before, sometimes when reviewing UK urban music on here, Mm. is that I live on a street in central London where we have a cut-through right bus. We have a branch of Nando's about 50 yards away. So I hear this kind of thing played loud through car stereos parked 20 yards from my house too often to actually leave me with any residual fondness for an awful lot of UK urban music it's associated with just turn it off I'm trying to watch Downton or not Downton but you know what I mean I think something wonderful when you do hear that you do hear something blasting from cars Mm. or whatever which is why I've really enjoyed a lot of the stuff that's happened sort of since grime like stuff that you're saying overtook it dubstep or UK funky or this sort of house Mm -hmm. revival and it's like love all that and there's nothing better than hearing a song you like sort of being blasted out of a car maybe if the car is not parked outside that's your house. That's the thing. A passing car, <laughs> a passing car. It's okay. the parked car. It's a pa- yeah, okay, now that's an important distinction to make, yeah. isn't But it? you might start liking it if you knew what the tracks were and you could sing along. I might, and sometimes, and sometimes I'd I think, I'd love actually, to see Michael sing well, along to this. sometimes, I remember John Crace, now of this parish, years and years ago when he was at the Standard, um, doing a piece where he was told to go and stand on a streetcar corner in Clapham and ask passing cars to turn their music down, people with subwoofers. <laughs> he didn't get killed, which was his principal worry at the start of the piece. But I do sometimes when I'm walking up the street to do hit things go, God, that sounds like it comes from another planet. I wonder what that is. But of course, I do never go up and say, excuse me, sir, that music from another planet that you're playing, could you tell me what it is? So I think they'd think I was taking the piss. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks for that voice. <laughs> it's time once again to put our fingers in our ears and welcome Luke Turner from The Quietus with a roundup of the noisy, glitchy chaos that has grabbed his attention this month. Greetings from the Quietus, which has now moved from our former home next to a noisy factory and building site to a new office above the music venue in North London. Sound checks come murmuring up through the floor. Winsome Folk, an effervescent Scandinavian indie, a timely reminder that one person's pleasure is frequently another's noisy pain. 
On the last Guardian podcast featuring music from the noisier end of our record shelf, I focused in on the influence of noise on techno and vice versa, including a collaboration stroke remix with Einstürschen de Neubauten and producer Perk. Perk is such a dynamic, fast-evolving artist that it's worth heading back for a second helping, and here he throws us a terrific curveball. Where many producers are jumping on the bandwagon by whacking a bit of distortion over a 4-4 beat, Ali Wells opens his brilliant new album The Power and the Glory by bringing in guest vocals from Dan Chandler, singer from the noise rock group Deathscalator, who sadly split last year. While the rest of The Power and the Glory features the kind of crisp, clear rhythms that characterise Perk's output, this track, Rotting Sound, is aptly named. Russell Haswell's new album 37 Minute Workout is a similarly pugilistic affair, built of gigantic beats that are at times not unlike having a sadistic gym teacher bouncing a lead exercise ball on your head. But that's not the whole story. There's a lot of space and subtlety on this record, due out on the excellent Diagonal label, such as a track called Chaos Clapping, which nods to Steve Reich, albeit as if the minimalist composer were being rattled around inside a crisp bucket. If you like your racket a bit more focused, then the new container EP is the one for you. This track from the adhesive EP is Obstruction. This is released on Liberation Technology, a relatively new sub-label from the ever-intriguing Mute Records, who are having a magnificent year with new releases from Liars, Liebach and the Mighty Swans. This is even more bracing than any of those though. Shortly before Christmas, I saw Container play at a club night in the basement and cells of an old Bristol police station where the roof reinforcements suggested that, had the balloon gone up and there been a nuclear war, this is where the authorities would have administered all the traffic wardens carrying machine guns. It made for a claustrophobic knees up, and no mistake. Poland is currently one of the most exciting countries in the world for experimental music, and while such scenes can occasionally be insular to the point of tedium, Poland seems to get much of its energy from collaboration and shared ideas. One of the key figures out of there at the moment is Kuba Zylek, who can be found playing as part of the Inner City Ensemble and brilliant Stara Rzeka. This track, though, comes from Tien Lai, a duo named after a brand of fags smoked in a Philip K. Dick novel. Apparently this loosely translates as heavenly music, and there's certainly something rather beatific about these most pleasing of drones. This is Simpson 3. As yet, there's no news of any reissues of Coyle's hard-to-find and murderously expensive back catalogue. 
However, fans can take heart in this release of Coyle's remixes of Nine Inch Nails material. Trent Reznor was a long-time fan of Coyle's music and collaborated with Peter Sleazy Christofferson on a controversial film, Broken. Reznor also named his recent band How to Destroy Angels after a 1984 Coyle single. These remixes of Nine Inch Nails by Coyle were once thought lost, and they tease all the sex and emotion out of Reznor's band's aggressive digital rock. Listen to this reissue compilation in the dark with the lights out, and by the end you're not quite sure whether to be terrified or aroused, which is the way it should be. This is the downward spiral, a gilded sickness. That was Luke Turner, who'll be back in a month or so with more Joyful Noise. And that's it for this week. Thank you to Michael and Dorian for coming in. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Thank you. And visit theguardian.com forward slash musicweekly for info and links on the show and to give us your thoughts. See you next week. Bye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.